Where is God at work in the world? What is God doing right now in our city, in our state, in our country? Where can we say that's what God is up to? Some of us might say that God is at work in our pursuits of justice. God is working in the liberation of the oppressed, the overcoming of racism, the end of sex trafficking, political freedoms for those suffering under dictators and tyrants. God is at work in our pursuits of justice. Others might say that God is at work in service to the poor. When the homeless receive homes, when those who are struggling in chronic and cyclical poverty receive living and reliable wages, when we experience a flourishing economy, that's when we know God is at work. Others might say that God is at work in the building up of families. When we have strong mothers and loving fathers, when we see care in the home, when we see faithful, lifelong marriages, when we see kin taking care of their people, that's where we know God is at work. Others might say God is at work in technology. When we see innovations in medicine and communication and information, when we overcome obstacles that our ancestors faced with great difficulty, that's when we know God is at work. And I believe God is working in all of these areas in very different ways. But I think the scandalous proclamation of the New Testament is that God is primarily at work in the world through the church. And that answer, that proclamation, may seem ridiculous. I mean, if God is all-powerful and if God cares about things like justice and equality and fairness— God wouldn't settle for the church to do his will, right? If God is primarily working through the church, he's putting his eggs in the worst basket. Doesn't the church have a lot of lazy people and hypocritical people? I mean, how could God be so trusting of such untrustworthy people? Why would God hitch his efforts and his work to selfish human beings? And even if all Christians were holy and good and righteous, that idea sounds, at the very least, ineffective. Couldn't God get more done through the powers of our government? Couldn't God achieve more help for the poor through the changing marketplace or our struggling economies? Couldn't God actually do more good if God focused his efforts on keeping families together and strong? If God really chooses to work primarily through the church, isn't God just setting himself and us up for failure at worst and inefficiency at best? That's what this series is all about. The new series we're starting today is called God's Plan for the Church. And I'm just going to tell you this whole sermon up front. God's plan for the world. Is the church. What God primarily wants to do in the world is the work of the church. And we're going to see this truth on display in a letter we call 
1 Corinthians. And just in case you're new to Christianity or haven't been to church in a while, this letter is written by a Jewish Christian named Paul. Now, for a while, Paul thought that Christians were actually undermining God's plan for the world. God, uh, Paul believed that the God of Israel would one day send a Jewish Messiah, that is, a king over Israel to rule. And Paul thought that the Messiah would restore the kingdom of Israel and kick out all of their enemies. Paul thought that all the nations or Gentiles would come to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. The dead would be raised from the dead, and God's perfect kingdom of justice and righteousness would reign forever and ever. That's what he believed. But Paul heard about some Jews who believed that a rabbi from Nazareth named Jesus was actually the long-awaited Messiah. But Paul knew that Jesus was executed by a Roman governor named Pilate, and Paul looked around and didn't really see the kingdom of Israel restored. He didn't see a Jewish king on the throne of David, and he didn't see the Romans kicked out, and he definitely didn't see anybody raised from the dead. So obviously these Christians were wrong. That is, until Paul had a vision on the road to Damascus. In this vision, Paul saw Jesus Christ in heaven. Paul realized that if Jesus was alive, that means he was raised from the dead, that he ascended to God the Father in heaven. And if he claimed to be the Messiah and he was raised from the dead by God, that means he had to be who he said he was. God would never raise a false Messiah, so Jesus must be the real thing. Paul immediately stopped persecuting Christians and started preaching to anyone he could so that they would become Christians. One place he went to was an ancient city in Greece called Corinth, and he met a couple there named Priscilla and Aquila who converted. And every Saturday on the Sabbath, Paul would try to persuade both Jews and Gentiles that Jesus really was the true Messiah. Now, Paul actually had a lot more success with Gentiles than with his own people. Many of the Gentiles were baptized, committed their lives to following Jesus, and Paul lived and worked and preached in that city, Corinth, for a year and a half. Eventually, Paul felt he could leave because another leader named Apollos joined Priscilla and Aquila in leading the churches in Corinth. But as soon as Paul left, the honeymoon period for this church came to an end. Paul had a mess on his hands. He started writing letters to the church in Corinth, and he got a lot of bad news. Some Christians in these churches were eating meat uh, from animals sacrificed to idols of pagan gods, which is not exactly great news for Christians who believe in one God only. One man in this church is actually open about his new relationship with his stepmom. There are tons of divisions over which ministers and leaders are best. Is it Paul or Peter or Apollos? There are Christians who are taking each other to court over trivial, meaningless matters. There are super spiritual Christians who are speaking in tongues during worship and thinking that they're superior to the Christians who don't. Some of the rich Christians at the church are getting drunk on communion wine while the poor and working class Christians haven't even shown up to church yet. It is an absolutely messed up church. And you won't believe what Paul says about them. 
he writes, at the very beginning of this letter we call 1 Corinthians, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. You do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, if I hadn't talked about all those issues in the church in Corinth, would you have known that Paul was writing to a church that was so messed up? Probably not. You probably would have thought that this church was doing well. Paul says that they're sanctified, which means holy and set apart. Paul says they've received grace and forgiveness and enriched in every way. Paul says they do not lack a single spiritual gift. And Paul says he has no doubt that Christ will keep this church firm in their faith and that whenever Christ returns, Paul is confident that they will be blameless on that day. To which I would want to say to Paul, who are you talking about? Don't you know who you're talking to? Because that's not the church I know about in Corinth, and that's not the church you, Paul, know about in Corinth. Are you lying to them? Are you downplaying their sinfulness? Are you just making sure to write something encouraging at the beginning in an otherwise very discouraging letter? What, Paul, are you up to? Well, I think that Paul is telling the truth and he's being a good pastor. Because despite all that we know about this church's failings, Paul believes a paradoxical truth. This church is messed up and they are set apart. They are divisive and Christ unites them. They are arrogant and Christ has given them every spiritual gift that they could want. This is why I believe that God is primarily at work in the world through the church. Because despite all of our failings, despite all of the weaknesses and inadequacies of the church, Paul believes that every church united to Christ through faith in him is set apart and sanctified and made holy and given grace and enriched and operating in the Holy Spirit. Paul believes that God, through Christ, created the church. I mean, Paul talks about the church all the time. It's who he writes to. It's what he aims to improve. It's the group that he wants to grow. And everyone he meets, he wants to join the church. Paul's focus and emphasis and obsession and love and passion for the church is based on Christ's creation of the church. 
If you look back in the Gospels, you see that Christ cares about the church. There's so much focus on the 12 leaders that he called to lead the church. Christ gives a mission to go to all the nations to the church. Christ poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church. Christ appeared to Paul and picked him to reach the Gentiles for the sake of the church. Christ is the cause, the source, the origin of the church. If you just look at all the times in this first section that Paul uses the word call, you'll see his focus on the church. Paul is called by God to be an apostle for the church. And the church is called to be Christ's holy people. God has called each and every one of us into fellowship with his son. God called the church into existence through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. The church is God's plan for the world. And I know that it sounds ridiculous or irrational or even self-serving. I'm a minister at a church, but I believe this. The church is at the heart of the New Testament. The church is the instrument in Christ's hand for the sake of the world. It is not primarily the state or the government or certain politicians or kings or queens. It's not primarily the market or the economy. It's not even the biological family. It's not technology. It is the church in Christ through which God works by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I don't think God is limited to working through the church. The church is definitely God's plan, but it is not God's straitjacket. God can work anywhere, anyway, at any time. But God's first instrument, God's go-to plan, his primary workshop is the church. And this is really good news because it helps us see the church in the truth and helps us understand what the church is not. The church is not a mistake. Sometimes we talk as if Jesus never wanted the church, as if we're disobeying him by being a community. But I would be shocked if Jesus called together those 12 apostles just to disband them the moment he ascended into heaven. From the start, Christ started a crowd, a community, a gathering of people. And he wanted and wants to expand and grow that community to reach all nations. A church is not a mistake. It's Christ's choice. Which means that the church is not a necessary evil. Sometimes we shrug our shoulders and we say, you know, humans need organizations to get the job done. We might as well have buildings and leaders and a place for people to gather. But we shouldn't shrug our shoulders. We should thank God for this gift. The church is not a concession to our weaknesses. We might as well have a church. The church is a gift to support us in our weaknesses. The church is not a necessary evil, which means the church is not just another nonprofit. Now, I'm not downplaying the importance of nonprofit organizations. I love them. I'm saying that the church is not just a nonprofit that just so happens to worship Jesus on Sundays. We need volunteers, but the church isn't just another good voluntary organization to help the community. The church is going to last forever. And I don't mean a church 
building a particular community in time will last forever. I mean the church as a whole will last forever. I mean that the people of God are going to be raised from the dead and live forever with Christ. That is not true of any nonprofit organization. Only the church will be given eternal life with Christ. The church is not just another nonprofit. The church is not a means to an end. Sometimes we talk about as if there's this really good thing that all of us want. We all want community. We all want justice. We all want belonging. We all want peace. Then we say that the church is just a really great place to get that thing. And that's why we join the church. But the church is not an interchangeable means to an end because you can find community and you can find some justice and you can find some peace and you can find some belonging in many different places. But what you can't do is force Christ and his Holy Spirit to be there. But they promise to indwell the church. The church is not an instrument or tool you use to get what you want. The church is Christ's instrument to get you. And he wants you dearly to be a part of the church. The church is not a means to an end. Which means the church is not just good for some people. Some of us might admit, yeah, church can be good, but just for some people, it's just not good for me. We think we can be spiritual every day of the week without fellow believers. But the church is good for all. Because it's where Christ and his spirit promise to be. And Christ and his spirit are not just good for some people. They're the greatest good for all. And if you know where you can find something good, always, for anyone, why turn your back on it? The church is not just good for some. The church is good for all because it's where Christ and his spirit are present. In the rest of this series, we're going to talk about God's plan for the church. We're going to address the question, what does God want for us? What does God want for this community of disciples? But this week is the foundation for the sermons to come. We can't move forward before we know that God's plan for the world is the church. And from there, we can explore God's plan for the church. And my hope, for every person who watches this, is that you'll see some strange wisdom in God's creation of the church. My hope is that what seems like a scandalous decision of Jesus to hitch his efforts to a group of 12 ragtag disciples is actually genius. My hope is that we come to recognize that the outrageous truth is really the case that the church is God's plan for the world.